0: You know, in the last several months, I have thought a lot about fear and cowardice. I have experienced a lot of fear and cowardice. Not fear of my death, necessarily, but fear over other things, for sure. And I can only guess that you have also. I've thought a lot about fear and cowardice because I am, by nature, a fearful cowardly person. And as I've thought more and more about fear and cowardice and where that comes from and why we let it dominate our lives, I have realized that the dividing line between faith and fear, between courage and cowardice, is a deep, profound knowledge of the glory of salvation. What I mean is whether we are faithful or whether we are fearful, whether we respond with courage to a situation or cowardice to that very same situation profoundly depends upon how much we know and love the treasure of eternal life. You see, the soul that comes to grips with what eternal life is is the very same soul that knows that it has nothing to lose. In living radically for Jesus Christ. You see, nothing chokes the fear of death more than the reality of eternal life. Nothing kills the curse of cowardice more than coming to grips with the fact that no matter what it is that happens in our lives, we are always safe in the sovereign hands of God. And coming to grips with the treasure of salvation is exactly why John wrote the letter that we know as the first letter of John. And the thing about this letter is that it's both tough and tender. It's both sour and sweet because as John grapples with this church that has been invaded by these smooth talking undercover cult group that caused real confusion about what the reality of what salvation is. And you have to understand, these diabolical con men had so successfully raised doubts about the apostles' teaching that the, these people began to wonder do I really have the truth? Have I misunderstood what the Bible says about salvation? Do I really have eternal life or do I not? Because according to these teachers, I don't, but according to the apostles, I do. And so, who am I supposed to believe? These people, you understand, they were choking and gasping on the toxic fumes of heretical teaching. And so John writes a letter that blows a breeze of theological clarity into these churches and in so doing gives them assurance of eternal life. You see, assurance is the issue. Confidence is the issue. Not confidence in ourselves or anything that we have done, but confidence that the treasure of salvation is ours permanently, irreversibly by faith in Jesus Christ. And my question is, what happens to a church that has that confidence? What happens to the people of God when they come to grips with what eternal life is and means? I'll tell you what happens. They believe John eleven twenty five. 25. They believe that which says that we live even if we die. And everyone who lives and believes in Christ will never die. You remember when he said that? And you remember where he said that? At a funeral. See, eternal life means that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And what that does is give us the guts to stare our feeble mortality right in the face. To march, as it were, into a virus-filled, danger-filled, chaos-filled world loaded with temptation, knowing that no matter what it is that happens in our lives, the happy ever after of our life has already been written. That's the assurance that eternal life gives us. That's exactly what John supplies. And so here we go. Let's go to the text. This morning, I want you to see from our text three foundations of salvation. Three foundations of salvation to which we must cling as the basis of our faith. Three foundations of salvation to which we must cling as the basis of our faith. We've already seen foundations one and two. Now we finish with the third. And it's this, number three, which is the criteria by which we know we have salvation. The criteria by which we know we have salvation Because you remember, I hope, what it is that John is doing in chapter 1. It's the classic case of two birds, one stone. At the exact same time in chapter 1, John is obliterating the bogus claims of the false teachers on the one hand, but with the exact same words, he is giving his people profound assurance of their salvation all at the same time. And how he does that is with three salvation foundations, three rock-solid foundational realities that refute the false claims of the teachers and give us profound assurance. And they are, number one, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which we saw two weeks ago. This is the historical proof and evidence that our salvation is real and grounded in the facts of history, and yet the incarnation of Christ, the heretics deny. Then foundation number two, foundation number two, John gives us in verse five, what is the foundational theological center of our salvation, which is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And what that is, is a metaphor for the blinding beauty and glory of God's majesty. And yet that is the very thing that the false teachers rejected. But then that brings us to the Final foundation, which again is the criteria by which we know we have salvation. In other words, what John proceeds to do in the rest of chapter 1 is provide for us tests, criteria, by which we may know if our salvation is authentic or if our salvation is counterfeit. They're a little bit like x-rays or CAT scans or EKGs that helps us see inside the soul to see if we do or do not have eternal life. And that is something that we should probably know. And you see, these false teachers did not pass the tests. They utterly failed the tests and revealed themselves to be both deceived and deceivers. And yet, and yet, those who truly belong to Christ will pass the test. You will pass them if you belong to Christ. And so there are five, five tests, and each one of these tests have a different design. And last week we pointed out that three of the tests in verses 6, 8, and 10 are what we might call negative tests, and two are positive, remember that, and that they alternate back and forth in a pattern, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative. And last week we saw test number one, test number one, and what does test one reveal? It reveals that counterfeit faith is deceitful faith. That counterfeit faith is deceitful faith. Look at verse 6. This is still review. Verse 6, he says, If we should say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, John says, we lie and do not practice the truth. Again, notice, If we should say, by we he means they, These slimy New Age deceivers who snuck into the church, I think John is quoting them and what they said is, we have fellowship with God. In other words, we know God. We experience God. We have a relationship with God, they claimed. And yet, did they? Did they actually know God? Did they truly have a relationship with the living God? Because you would agree it's one thing to say you know God, but it's a completely different ballgame to actually know God. And so how do you tell the difference? How do you discern the difference between mere profession and actual possession? John answers the question. Look what he says. Basically tells us we can claim fellowship with God all we want, but at the end of the day, if we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There it is. The proof of the pudding of our profession is displayed in the reality of our lives. And you remember from last week that darkness, darkness is simply simply a summary way to describe the God ignoring pleasures of sin and unbelief. John's not talking about having a bad week here. He's not even talking about having a bad month here. He's not talking about who people he's not talking about people who confess and fight their sin and sometimes lose. Rather, he means a life of nonchalant disregard to the majesty of God. He's talking about people, people who who have willful, ongoing patterns of sin in their life that they knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. His point is you can't truly have fellowship with the God who is light and yet be walking in the darkness. It doesn't work. You can't live in the nonchalant disregard of the majesty of God and have any assurance that your salvation is authentic. In fact, if that's who we are, John says, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the question is, do you pass the test? But then last week we also saw test number two. And what does test number two reveal? Test number two reveals that authentic faith is visible faith. Authentic faith is visible faith, which means, what he means is, is that authentic faith knows that it lives every single moment of their lives in the gaze of the God who sees the secrets of the soul. Look at verse 7. But if we should be walking in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, who John is describing here is a true believer. This is authentic, genuine, biblical faith on open display. An authentic, genuine, biblical faith walks in the light, lives in the light as God is in the light. And so what that means is, is that true believers live, even their most private, secret, hidden moments of their lives, as if God were present in the very room, which is exactly what He is. Even when we go inside and we draw the blinds and we go to our rooms and we close the door and we shut off the lights and we lay in our beds and we close our eyes and we ponder with our most secret thoughts and desires, there is one who sees. And he is closer to us even than our own skin. See, the point is true faith knows that it lives every single moment in the holy gaze of the God who sees the secrets of the soul. Even when we are least guarded and conscious and aware of the living God, He is there in that moment, in the totality of His being, watching and looking and evaluating and examining and analyzing, ready to be called on for His mercy and power. That is authentic faith. The question is, is that the kind of faith that you possess? The question is, how would you know? How would you know if that's the kind of faith you had? Well, John answers the question, and the connections that he makes in the text are just astonishing. Look what he says in in, in verse 7. But if we should be walking in the light as he himself is in the light, how do we know? We have fellowship with one another And secondly, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The connection that John makes here is really profound. We would have never made this connection on our own, but what he reveals is astonishing. You see, if we have true, authentic, saving faith, number one, we love spending time with other believers and we love to serve them. That's called fellowship. But number two, if we have true authentic saving faith, we see the purifying power of Jesus Christ in our lives, cleansing us from sin, carving us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, to the degree that we don't see those things... To the degree that we don't love and pursue other believers, and to the degree that we don't see slow and steady victory over sin in our lives, John tells us that we have every right to question if our salvation is authentic. So the question is, do you pass the test? Do you live even the most private, secret, hidden moments of your lives As if God were present in the very room. What that does is bring us to test number three. Test number three. All that was last week. Now test number three. Invasive and revealing test number three. And what exactly does it reveal? It reveals that counterfeit faith is delusional faith. Counterfeit faith is delusional faith. Because again, you have to appreciate how uh, confused things had become in these churches. How much these new agey space cadets had muddied the waters with their claims of a secret knowledge from Christ, which believe it or not, sounded really persuasive on the surface. And you see, one of the things they claimed, or should I say one of the things they denied, was that they had a sin nature. They denied that their souls were born mangled by the chainsaw of sin and depravity and that they needed sovereign grace to intervene in their lives and obtain salvation. They denied original sin. They denied total depravity. And you can see it in the text. Look at verse 8. He says, If we should say we have no sin, we are literally deceiving ourselves And the truth is not in us. Again, we. We meaning they. They said this. These elitist, separatist, false teachers not only claimed fellowship with God, but they also claimed to have no sin. That's what they claimed. We have no sin. It's interesting. They claimed to know God, but they walked in darkness, but they also claimed to have no sin, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, how do you even do this? How do you even claim something like this and actually expect to be taken seriously? And when I read this, when I studied this, I thought, okay, uh, how would this be persuasive? Why were there people actually confused and tempted to buy into this garbage? And the answer is, it just goes to show that anything can sound persuasive if you just use the right words. Because you can use sleight of hand with language, you know. You can perform magic tricks and illusions with your words, you know. I mean, this this is not crazy. I mean, it is, but it's not. People have ways of doing this. People come up with ways of so redefining what sin is or is not that you can find ways to justify just about anything. For instance, my first year as college pastor several years ago, came out that one of the Couples in the ministry, dating couples, were sleeping together and had been for months. And when it became public and it came out in the open, the elders and I, some of the elders and I, we approached him and we talked with him, graciously confronted him, reasoned with him about his sexual immorality, her too, but the conversation was with him at first. And to my great surprise, we were met with a preposterous but well crafted explanation unfolded in a 12-page single-spaced document that based on Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh, that when you sleep together, you automatically become married in God's eyes and blessed by God, and therefore they hadn't done anything wrong and didn't need to confess a thing. You can justify anything if you just use the right words. That's exactly what these little weasels had done. You see, there are three things, three things that you have to deny to be able to say this with a straight face. Three things that you deny, that they had to deny about sin. Number one, they denied the evil of sin. They denied the evil of sin. In other words, sin is not as bad as you think it is. Sin and evil are just made up constructs imposed upon humanity that keep us back from reaching our true potential see like eating soup with a fork you just couldn't pin these guys down on anything because they had so cleverly redefined what sin is the number 2 they not only deny the evil of sin they denied the presence of sin they deny the presence of sin in other words they deny the biblical teaching that we are born with a sin nature that we are born totally depraved that we emerge out of our mother's wombs blind dead damned and helpless slaves of sin and spiritual death. I mean, at worst we are flawed. Maybe we're broken, but we're not totally depraved. I mean, human nature is essentially good and we all have the spark of the divine within us and we have the free will to achieve human perfection without the assistance of supernatural grace or something like that. But then number three, when these con men said that we have no sin, they not only denied the evil of sin and the presence of sin, but they also also denied responsibility for sin. They denied responsibility for sin. Because you remember from the intro sermon on 1 John that these guys held to a prevalent philosophical teaching of the day that claimed that physical matter was bad and evil and anything spiritual was good physical world, bad, spirit world, good. The problem is, in the mind of these false teachers, that you are a good spirit trapped inside a bad body. The holy, pure, divine part of you is trapped inside this worthless cage of flesh. Who you appear to be on the outside is not really who you are on the inside, which is exactly what the transgender movement claims today. And So these crooks had so cleverly worked out a system that any errors or mistakes or perceived sins in their lives were not really them, but only the sinful cage of human flesh inside which they were trapped. You're actually a really good person on the inside. You're actually really a good person. And the things you do on the outside, you can't really help. And that's not really who you are which is exactly what people say today, isn't it? And sometimes, sometimes, sadly, strangely, in the church. I mean, you understand, these guys here, they were unbelievers. They were false teachers. But but, we're not off the hook because we have versions of this that we use in our lives today, don't we? In our own sanitized ways, we find ways to deny the evil of sin, And the presence of sin and the responsibility for sin, even believers, sadly, tragically, can minimize and redefine and rationalize their sin. And so my question is, do you see any of that in your life? For instance, do you deny the evil of sin? In other words, is there anything in your life that you have redefined to justify its presence in your life? Are there some things that you have allowed and excused and tolerated in your life that definitely, absolutely should not be there, but it is there because you no longer see it for the evil that it is? Because I'm concerned. I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the influence of secular psychology into the church. I'm concerned about this. Because the the psychological association, they use replacement words. They have things like conditions and, and sicknesses and, and disease for things in the Bible that actually are described as sin. And so the, the, the American Psychological Association makes it really easy to deny responsibility for sin, to redefine sin, to minimize sin. Or, like these false teachers, do you deny the presence of indwelling sin in your life? In other words, do you think that the greatest problem exists outside of you and not inside of you? Do you believe that the human heart, although we are regenerate as believers, although we are born again as believers, do you believe that our hearts are so unbelievably corrupt that you should be incredibly suspicious of your own motives and desires? We should be. Do you believe that we are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace? Let me ask it this way. Are you frequently defensive and blame-shifting when anyone brings anything to you about your life? Do you automatically just assume the best about yourself and that you are righteous and that everyone else is to blame? Because that's exactly what these guys did. But finally, like these false teachers, do you deny the responsibility for sin? You deny the responsibility for sin because we do this, you know, we totally do. We, when we say things like, man, you know, when I did that, that, that wasn't me. I don't know who that was, but that wasn't me. No, that was you. That's the problem. You did do that on purpose. Or when we say, when we say things like, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. No, You did you intentionally did Instead, we should say please forgive me for the words that i meant to say so the question is have have you constructed a complicated network of arguments in your mind that allows you to live comfortably in sin whatever it may be because because, because the reality is if you want change if you're if you're tired of settling for superficial Christianity It looks good on the surface, but inside you are dying inside. If you are tired of merely playing a game, if you are tired of merely going through the motions, if you are tired and, and finished, you are done today with the facade of superficial Christianity. I just want you to know it is not hopeless for you. Real, authentic, lasting, satisfying, supernatural change and transformation is available to you. That's why Christ died. Not just to forgive the sins of the past, but also provide transforming supernatural power for the sins of the present. Life change is possible for us. And how we get access to that power is through the book that you're holding in your hands. The sacred text of Holy Scripture is the means by which the supernatural power of Christ is mediated to our lives. It is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. And so what you must do is read and ponder and study and meditate and be saturated by the text. And before you know it, your heart will begin to change. But notice. Notice what John says about these sneaky con men who claim they had no sin. Look at the end of verse 8. If we should say that we have no sin, here it is, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Those are terrifying words, isn't it? We deceive ourselves deliberately, on purpose. The human heart has the potential to do that. And that's exactly what these guys did. They, they intentionally made up this mythical reality and then willingly it lived inside their own mythical fairy tale because that's what the human heart does to get what it wants. I mean, the powers of the mind to deceive itself is one of the great wonders of human history. Which is why we need the self-correcting power of God's Word, don't we? But notice, notice the grave implication. Should one say, We have no sin, not only do we deceive ourselves, but John says, The truth is not in us. The truth is not in us. Who is he talking about? You know who he's talking about. He's talking about an unbeliever. He's talking about an unbeliever, not a Christian. Because people who claim this, people who minimize and redefine and rationalize their sin, people who live in nonchalant disregard of the majesty of God and the the word of God, they have never truly encountered the living God. They just haven't. They have yet to experience the soul-awakening sovereign grace of God in regeneration. No one encounters the sheer raw holiness of God and still lives under the delusion of their own inherent goodness. It does not happen. Because true faith, true, authentic, saving faith reveals itself in sorrow and contrition and mourning and repentance and confession of sin, which is exactly where John goes next in test number four. Test number four, what does it reveal? Test number four reveals that authentic faith is vulnerable faith. Authentic faith is vulnerable faith. Look what John describes in verse nine. If we should literally be confessing our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it's clear, right? Delusional faith denies sin, authentic faith acknowledges sin counterfeit faith conceals its sin, authentic faith confesses its sin, and that's precisely what John reveals. And what's so profound here is that that word confess is literally present tense. Be confessing. That was really, that was really incredible right there. Be confessing. So he's not talking about that one-time transaction when you were four or ten or twenty when you first became a Christian. Rather, what he's talking about, get this now, is the perpetual habitual activity of the Christian life the steady drumbeat of the Christian life. Confession, you understand, it's just part of the rhythm of our everyday lives, our every hour lives. This is just something that we habitually do. Now, it's true, we should cultivate the habit of praise and thanksgiving throughout the day, yes, but we should also cultivate the custom of confession of our sin. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because the more you see of who God is, the more you see the pollution of your own heart. The higher up into God we climb, the greater vantage point we have to see the sin in our lives. You have to understand, seeing the glory and the beauty of God produces in our lives profound awareness of the corruption of our hearts. Which is exactly what happened to the prophet Isaiah, wasn't it? Isaiah chapter 6. As he beheld the towering majesty of God exalted on a throne, the train of his robes filling the temple, as he beheld the white hot holiness of God's radiant being, his soul became unraveled, and all he could say in reply is, Woe is me. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. Do you see? exposure to the excellencies of God's worth in the scriptures elicits from us humble, broken, but joyful confession of sin. Which is also why we should read soul-stirring books on the majesty of God. We should. We should read those. That's why we should read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul and Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer and None Greater by Matthew Barrett, and Majesty of the Mystery by Scott Oliphant. And it's exactly why we should read the thousand-page book on the character of God by Stephen Charnack called The Existence and Attributes of God. Why? Because to see God is to be changed by God. The more glory you see of who God is, the more you see your sin. And the more you see, the more you confess. And the more you confess, the more your heart begins to change. And rumor has it that there are these fish born in underground caves that go blind because they never see the light of the sun. And the same way, if you do not see the light of God's glory from the pages of Scripture, we will see our sin less and less. And the more that happens, the more delusional we become. And the more that happens, the more we begin to drift into the shark-infested ocean of sin and destruction. The question is, do you see that in your life? Do do you see the, the... habits, and patterns of confession in your life? Do you see the raw, earnest, blood and guts, brutal honesty before the God of the universe as you go throughout your day? Because I would argue, I would argue that one of the greatest demonstrations of the reality of salvation is if we see tender, humble, broken-hearted confessions of our sin throughout the day. And yet the question is, why should we do this? Why should we confess our sin? I mean, it doesn't God already know about it? And and furthermore, if we are in Christ, hasn't He already forgiven us of that sin? Why do we need to confess our sin? Is this absolutely necessary? It is absolutely necessary. Because there is a thing called transactional forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness. Yes, it is true. All of your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for by Christ. And yet, that does not rule out the possibility that sin creates a breach in our relationship with God. Right? and we were so big we're so big about calling Christianity a relationship with God and that's true that's exactly what it is and yet like any other relationship sin hinders the full enjoyment and experience of that relationship and so we confess sin not because it gets us resaved or gets us born again again but we confess our sin because The goal is unhindered enjoyment of the pleasures of God himself. So again, the question is, do you see this in your life? Do you see a profound awareness of your sin? Do do you see in your life the sweet sorrow of repentance and confession of sin? And furthermore, do you do this with one another? We talk about redemptive relationships here. And if you're like, okay, well, what is that? Where do you even begin? If you want the beginning place, to, a place to start in redemptive relationships is find someone in the church to confess your sin and ask them to pray for you. That is the perfect beginning of a redemptive relationship. James 5, 16 says that we must do that very thing. And yet what this does is raise another question. And the question is, how, how do we know that God will forgive us? How do we know? How do we know for sure that God will always forgive? How do we know that after we've confessed the same, th- same thing a thousand times over, again and again and again, that God will bestow His mercy to us? How do we know that the streams of His mercy won't run dry? And I know you already know the answer, but pretend like you don't, and look what he says in verse 9. If we should be confessing our sins, he says, here it is, He is faithful and righteous he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our from all unrighteousness do you see what it is what it is john roots our forgiveness in what is it about us that guarantees that God will always extend mercy and grace and forgive people like us who always run to the shallow streams of sin. What is it? You saw the answer. Nothing in us. Nothing in us. Rather, we know that God will always forgive precisely because He is faithful and righteous. That's why. That's why, don't you see, our assurance of salvation is a thousand percent dependent upon the magnanimous character of the living God. And so John says, number one, that God will forgive and cleanse because God is faithful. He is faithful. And yet the question is, faithful to who? Faithful to what? Faithful to himself. It's faithful to himself. You see, God can always be counted on to be exactly who He has revealed Himself to be in the pages of Scripture. And what God has revealed about Himself is that He loves to forgive His people. He loves to do that. Isn't that what He revealed to Moses in Exodus 34? When He revealed to Moses a glimpse of His glory, when He jammed Moses in the cleft of the rock and He passed by and He declared His glory, what did Yahweh say? Yahweh! Yahweh, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping chesed, loving kindness for thousands, and here it is, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God loves to forgive his people. That is who he is. See, God's forgiveness is not like punch cards after you use up all your chances. That's it. God is not the great pit bull in the sky that is likely to turn on you should you step on his tail too many times. I don't even know if pit bulls have tails, but you get the point. You see, God, God will be faithful to forgive his people in Christ. You see, God knew what he was getting into when he saved people like us. He knew that there would be the need for inexhaustible mercy and grace. And that's exactly what the death of his son provides. But you see, God is not only faithful to forgive and cleanse. John also says that God is righteous. God is righteous. And do you know what the righteousness of God means? It isn't just God's It doesn't just mean that God does right things. It isn't just His ethical morality. You see, righteousness, if you did a study, an Old Testament study of the righteousness of God, you would see that righteousness is God's unswerving commitment always to act for the glory of His own name. That's righteousness. His unswerving commitment Always to act for the glory of his own name. He must always act in full allegiance to the infinite worth of his glory. That is righteousness. But you see, one of the things that displays the infinite worth of his glory is precisely in forgiving and cleansing guilty sinners. This is insanely hope giving. You see, God will forgive and cleanse. Why? When the sins you confess become smaller and smaller? No. But because God forgiving guilty sinners puts the infinite worth of His glory on display. God will forgive and cleanse. Why? Because your confessions get further and fewer between? No, but because forgiving guilty sinners displays the infinite worth of His glory. God will forgive and cleanse, not when our good deeds outweigh our bad, but because giving grace to guilty sinners displays the infinite worth of His glory. Do you see? And I know, I know that there are some here in this room you fret and you fidget and you tremble and you worry and you fear and you are anxious about your souls today today you must take refuge in the faithfulness and righteousness of God because therein lies the guarantee of our forgiveness and our assurance which brings us finally to test number five Test number five, to help us determine if our salvation is authentic or if it is counterfeit. And what does this test reveal? This final test reveals that counterfeit faith is dishonorable faith. Counterfeit faith is dishonorable faith. John ends on a serious and weighty note here. Very serious, very weighty, as he quotes the claims of the false teachers. And notice in verse 10 what it is they claimed. If we should say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, notice the if. If. Hypothetical, not so hypothetical, because John is directly quoting these teachers of the dark arts, and one of the things they claimed about themselves, that that they have not sinned. And did you hear the difference between this and verse 8? In verse 8 he says, he quotes them as saying, we have no sin. Here in verse 10 he says, we have not sinned. What's the diff between those two? The diff is, is that to say you have no sin is to deny that you have a sin nature. To say that you have not sinned is a delusional claim to say that you have never actually committed a sin. Or at least one that deserves eternal wrath and judgment. I don't know how far they took it, but either way, this is insane and ridiculous. And maybe you would think, okay, well, how would they substantiate this claim? How could they say this and it actually be taken serious by some of the people in these churches? I mean, this is crazy, isn't it? It is, but it's not. And this is not the last time that people have said this kind of garbage and people buy into it. For instance, In the 19th century, out of the Methodist Church came this thing called the Holiness Movement. Where people claim that you can obtain some kind of sinless perfection through some blessing of the Holy Spirit. And tons of people bought into that garbage because again, it all comes down to how you define your terms. You have to understand, this this is a complex issue. This is really tricky. All right, the reason why this was catchy, the reason why this had some kind of appeal is because these teachers, again, they claimed flesh, bad, spirit, good. You're holy and good, trapped inside a cage of mortal flesh. And so any, any sinful things you do, that's not really you. It's just the sinful flesh inside which you are trapped. You're holy and sinless on the inside, but fallen and mortal on the outside, which, if you think about it, God! kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Isn't that how the Christian life kind of feels sometimes? I mean, did not Paul say in in Romans 7, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it. You see, they took that kind of thing, they took that kind of teaching and they twisted it and mangled it in such a way to make their claim to be sinless seem credible and real. The problem with their error, of course, is that they totally disregarded the biblical teaching that says that anything we do on the outside is the inevitable manifestation of who we are on the inside. But again, with this, there's a catch, isn't it? These people, these people in the text, they were clearly unbelievers. These false teachers, clearly unbelievers. But again, again, we have versions of this in our lives, don't we? We have versions of this. I mean, we would never go so far as to say that we are sinless, but sometimes that's exactly how we act. And most of us, most of us, myself included, in fact, I'm the leader of this club, we are far too quick to assume the best about ourselves. We forget, we forget that, that our hearts are so corrupt and polluted, even though we are regenerated, no longer slaves of sin, we're not, if we're in Christ, no longer slaves of sin, but we forget that our hearts are so corrupt that every thought, desire, feeling, craving, word, and action is deliberately contaminated by sin. That we contaminated on purpose. How do I? I don't feel like I do. We do. Our hearts are that, are that corrupt. And any opinion of ourselves that's higher than that, we're living in a dream world. You see, I'm convinced that half, more than half of problems in marriage, in our relationships, are solved if we would only embrace what the Bible says about how wicked our hearts actually are. Think about it. Much of the anger, much of the conflict, much of the friction we feel in our lives with other people comes simply because we think too darn highly of ourselves. Because when we do that, when we claim to be sinless or perfect, whatever level, what does John say is the grave implication? Look at it again at verse 10. If we should say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. John's bold, black and white, jagged, sharp, razor sharp language. You remember in verse 6 that John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, he says, we lie. We're we're big fat liars, he says. But you see, it's one thing to be a liar but it's something completely different to stick your finger in God's chest and call him a liar, which is exactly what they did. Do you understand? In, in minimizing, denying, redefining, rationalizing sin, guess what they did? They called into question the entire plan of human redemption. It's exactly what they did. They dishonor the God with blasphemy because think about it, all the doctrines of the Christian faith, all of them, everything contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, regeneration, forgiveness, and eternal life, all hang together on the doctrine of total depravity. That in Adam... We are born ruined sinners under the wrath and judgment of God. Which is exactly why we needed a second Adam to come, isn't it? A Savior, a Redeemer, a serpent crushing sin bearing sacrifice of sinless perfection to take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. And I know that you know that I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who became man for us and for our salvation. And He didn't just live, He died. And He didn't just die, but the death that He died, He died for sinners in their place. And He didn't just die, but He rose triumphant from the tomb, giving the grave a beatdown. And right this minute, He stands reigning, ruling the entire universe from heaven ready to be called upon for mercy and grace. Ready to apply the proceeds of His death to anyone who calls out to Him for mercy and grace. And so my question is, if you are walking in the darkness, if you are deceiving yourself, if the Word, if the truth is not in you, and you don't actually have fellowship with the living God, won't you cry out, Christ for mercy and grace. Because what John gave us here are tests. Five tests that reveal if our salvation is authentic or if our salvation is counterfeit. And my question is, how did you do on the tests? Did you pass the tests? Did you test positive for saving faith? What did John's CAT scan, EKG, reveal about the status of your soul? Because you see, what John wants to give us in this letter is assurance. Unbreakable, unshakable assurance that the treasure of salvation is ours permanently, undeniably, eternally by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, when we have that assurance, what that does is give us the faith. The faith and the courage to stare a fallen world right in the face, knowing that no matter what it is that happens to us, the outcome is secure. Let's pray. Oh Lord, none of us are ever excited to go in for surgery. Going under the knife, going under the surgical tools of a doctor, oh Lord, is never our desire, never our first choice. And same thing, Lord, when we come under the surgical tool, the surgical knife, the scalpel of Holy Scripture to cut open our souls and peek what's inside, that's maybe not what we would have chosen to have happen to us this morning, but we're not afraid of that. We're not afraid of asking ourselves the hard questions. We're not afraid of being interrogated, interrogating ourselves, not because we're cavalier, Lord, not because we're presumptuous, not because, Lord, we, we are placing any trust in ourselves. In fact, it's just the opposite but Lord, why we are not fearful of those questions is because we know there is, a, there is a Savior, there is a Redeemer. Oh Lord, that we will, oh Lord, that our entrance into eternal life is not based on a performance, but on the sin-bearing death of the Son of God. Lord, where we struggle is in seeing our lives be changed, in seeing the application of Your Word, seeing the transformation of, of, of our lives. And Lord, I pray for those who struggle and fight and fidget and who wrestle and that the Christian life feels like, a, like a, a battle and a war, bloody warfare. I am grateful for them. And I pray that you would comfort those people who who is that. That is their experience of the Christian life. Comfort them with the fact that that is one of the greatest manifestations of saving faith. That's real. But those who are wandering those who are deluded, those who just assume that they're okay, oh Lord, fill them with fear and trembling and that they would really take a deep second look about where they're actually at with you. And at the end of the day, Lord, may you work in our lives in such a way that you